tonight we're going to talk about a topic that I know, if, I think if we're honest, I think it haunts a lot of us, or I guess a lot of you. Uh, and and it's, it's, the, it's the question of, um, what if I never get married? Or what if I never get a boyfriend or a girlfriend? What if it's just me single for the rest of my life? That feels really awful and terrifying and lonely and miserable. And so... We're going to look at that, that question tonight, and, and there's a lot of different places that we can look in the Bible to address that question. We're going to look at this um, kind of famous passage out of 1 Corinthians um, chapter 7, and we're not going to read the whole chapter because it's too long. I've just kind of selected a couple of excerpts. So if you have a sheet or a Bible or you want to look at the screen behind me, we'll just pick up in verse 7. It reads this. This is Paul writing. He says, I wish that all men were as I am. But each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Verse 17, nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I laid down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freed man. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each man as responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him to. Now about virgins. Which I just think is a funny transition. Now about virgins. I have, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. I would, like to you, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good. Not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. This is God's word for us tonight. Let me pray, and then we'll jump in and talk about it. So let's pray. Father, we we come into your presence um, now, not just because that's what you do after you read a passage from the Bible, but we come into your presence because we're desperate for your help. I can't teach this, and these folks can't understand this apart from your spirit's enabling grace and so we would ask and that's why we ask now that you would come and be our teacher and to open up our eyes and to unclog our ears and to soften our hearts so that the gospel would be sweet to us 
maybe for the first time, or that maybe it's lost its sweetness and it would regain it maybe as a result of tonight. So would you do that great work in our hearts? And we would ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So two big ideas tonight about singleness. I think this passage kind of clearly lays out two big bucket head ideas about what singleness is. Singleness is a calling and singleness is a gift. So those are the two things we're going to talk about. Singleness is a calling and singleness is a gift. First, singleness is a calling. I'm going to reference this passage a lot that we just read because there's a lot here. But if you look back at verses 17 through 25, Paul's basically saying this idea. Look, whatever situation you were in in life when you were called and became a Christian, you should probably stay in that particular situation. So, for example, if you were a mechanic or a lawyer or a housewife and you became a Christian, then continue to serve the the Lord in that particular context. Now, that doesn't mean that you're absolutely bound to that vocation for the rest of your life. It just means that's where you should stay, at least for the time being. So if you go ahead and look, his basic point is to say in verse 20, serve the Lord precisely where God has called you. I'll read it again, verse 20. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. In verses 21 through 24, he then kind of addresses the question, does that mean you can't change Jobs And the answer is no. So what if you were a slave when you became a Christian? He says, well, serve the Lord as a slave. But if you go ahead and look at verse 21, he says, if you can gain your freedom, that's cool. Like, do that instead. That's better. The basic principle is this. Serve the Lord in whatever context he's called you to. He's put you in a particular context. Maybe you became a Christian. Serve the Lord there. What does this have to do with singleness? Here's what it has to do with singleness. Paul takes that principle and he applies it not just to vocation, to what your you know, working status is, but he applies it to your relational status as well. So if you look at verses um, 25 through 28, he says the basic same thing. If you were a Christian and you were married, then serve the Lord as a married person. If you are a Christian and you're single, then serve the Lord as a single person. Again, you're not absolutely permanently bound to being single forever. He even says in verse um, 28, if you're single and you get married, it's not like you've sinned. That's a good thing. That's okay. The point is you just have a different context in which to serve Jesus in now. So here's basically what all of this means if you put it all together. That singleness is it's a calling. That it's a unique context that God calls you to in order to serve the Lord in. Which I think is, um, to hear the Bible say this, I think is actually really good news. It's really good news because in the Christian subculture that a lot of us find ourselves swimming in, there's a lot of unspoken pressure to get married. And the older you get, if you're not married, you'll feel it even more. When you graduate, you go into the, quote, real world, you join a church, that question is going to be asked of you a lot more than you want it to be. My, my wife, Catherine, has a good friend um, who, was, who was single really until, um, I guess, a, a year and a half ago now. So she was, so she was you know, into her 30s, single. And regularly at church, people would come up to her and ask her this question of, like, so are you seeing someone special? Or, like, are, you know, her family would ask her, like, are you ever going to, like, date someone? And it was just, there's this implicit, like, message embedded in there that if you're not married, something's wrong with you. 
Like, why aren't you getting married? What's, what's your problem? And the Bible's looking at you and saying, look, you can, you can be a whole person as a single person. You don't have to get married to complete you. It's, it's, you're, if you're called to it, you can be an absolutely whole person and you can serve the Lord in that particular context. Jesus was single and he was an absolutely whole person. Paul was single, whole person. I just think this is really good news because it takes that pressure off of um, God wants you to love God and to love people. And guess what? Single people can do that. That's not just, you're not a second class citizen in God's kingdom or the church if you're not married. So, okay, here's the question then. How do you know if you're called to singleness? How do you know if you're called to it? Well, um, I think this question is actually pretty easy to answer. Because according to the Bible, they're really, biblically speaking, uh, you're either married or you're not married. And so everybody in this room, most likely, I'm guessing, um, would fall into the single category. Even if you're dating somebody, even if you got whatever you're talking, dating, whatever you are, in the Bible's framework, you would fall into the category of not married, therefore single. So, guess what? Right now, you're called to be single. That's the calling that God and his providence have put you in. It says, hey, you're not married right now. That affords you all kinds of opportunities and privileges and challenges. But, the, but you are in a context called single in which you can be a full person and in which you can serve the Lord. But I know you're, you're, you're saying that's not the question I'm asking, though. I'm asking, am I called to this permanently? Like, is this my lot in life from here on out? And that's the question that really scares you and unsettles you. And I don't have the answer to that question. I don't think there is a good answer to that question. Um, but my hope is, is that as you get rooted in the reality of who God is and what the gospel is for to you, that that question would not be so unsettling. That if it comes down to, okay, my lot in life is I'm not going to get married, that you would actually grow to be content with that. And that wouldn't be so horrifying. Singleness is a calling. It's something that you're... you're called to. And if that is the case, then I think that this confronts two big lies that we think about when it comes to relationships and marriage and dating. Here's the first lie that if singleness is a calling, that it confronts this first lie. The first lie is this, that singleness can therefore be an excuse for selfishness. But hey, I'm not dating anybody right now. All my friends are dating people, but I'm not. And so that means this is me time. I'm not bound to anybody. I'm not tied down to anybody. So all of my money, all of my time, all of my resources, all of my energy gets to go completely devoted to me. And I know some of you like that idea because even, you know, for whatever reason, because of your background or you see relationships that are hard, you're thinking, I don't want to be in a relationship. I don't want to be tied down. I so value my independence. I want to travel. I want to do my own thing. And a lot of that, if we're not careful, can just be unashamed narcissism, just complete self-absorption of, I don't, want, I don't want to be committed to anyone else but me. There's, um, there's an there's a office episode that I think really puts some you know, skin on this idea. I don't know if you remember it. It's, it's um, from season six. It's an episode called The Chump. And it's the episode where Michael Scott, you know, the regional manager of Dunder Mifflin, was having an affair with a married woman. 
And uh, everybody in the office was um, you know, confronting him about this, criticizing him about this, and he was you know, making excuses, and he was being defensive, and he was fighting it, fighting it, fighting it. And as, as the episode kept going, they're in sort of the main floor of the office, and they're confronting him about it again, saying, like, you need to end this. This is wrong. This is not okay. What's wrong with you? And he eventually just stops justifying it, stops dealing with it, and he just says, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to embrace this new way of living, that I'm going to do whatever I want to do and screw the rest of y'all and what y'all think. And so he dives headfirst into this lifestyle, and here's what he says. A couple quotes here, a couple lines from the script. He says, I am what I am, and I want what I want, and right now, I want a piece of cake. And from now on, whenever I'm hungry, I'm going to eat whatever I'm hungry for. And he starts walking to the break room. And, you know, Kevin, the big guy, goes, <laughs> he goes that's a dangerous game, friendo. <laughs> and so as he walks into the break room, Kelly and Ryan are in there talking with each other. And so he opens up the fridge and he pulls out this cake, this full cake that hasn't been cut into yet. And he puts it on the counter. And Kelly says, that's, um, she says, that's Meredith's cake. It's her birthday. And he says, I don't care. I have an appetite for life. And he reaches in with his hand and just starts taking it to the face. It's like all over his face. And as you see as he's doing this, Ryan, uh, you can see that his kind of wheels are turning. And he says this, um, good for you, man. Good for you. And he's like, you can tell he's getting inspired. And he immediately gets up and starts leaving the break room. And it cuts to like the monologue scene, you know, where he's like in front of the camera by himself. And he goes, he takes what he wants. He just takes what he wants. And then it cuts back to him walking through the office, and he goes straight up to Aaron, you know, the receptionist up at the front. And he, go, and he goes, you know what? I think you're attractive, and I want to sleep with you. And she has this, this horrified face, and she goes, is this a joke? He goes, yep. And then turns and kind of walks back to the break room. And as he passes Michael on the way back in, he's all flustered. He goes, it's hard to live that way, man. You've got to really not care what people think about you. I don't know how you do it, Michael. That, I don't know how you can be that cold. And so this is a stupid scene. It's an amazing scene. But it illustrates even Ryan gets it that, like, that's crazy messed up. If you're going to live all out, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. I'm going to completely indulge myself. I'm going to throw the middle finger up to everybody else. Even Ryan comes to the conclusion, that's insane. Like You've got to be heartless. You've got to be out of control to do that. And so if you're going to look at singleness and say, that is my ticket to indulging whatever I want to do, and, and none of my money, none of my resources, none of my time, none of my energy gets to go to anywhere else other than me, in some sense, Ryan is looking at you as well and saying, that's, a, that's, that's messed up. That's a lie that we want to believe. That singleness can just be an excuse to indulge yourself. It just just uh, feed your selfishness. But here's the second lie that I, that I think UT students need to confront, and it's this, that you believe I have to seriously be dating somebody or engaged by the end of college. There's this... There's this lie in the framework with which you think and move of, I've got four or five or six years here, and I need to be dating somebody or at least engaged by the end. Because if I graduate and I'm not connected to somebody, I'm just going to be thrown out into the real world and no one else is out there. Everyone is here. I've got to meet somebody here. And so the pressure is on. And so you're always hunting 
You're always scanning. You're always pursuing. You're always thinking, like, could this be the one? Could this be the one? Could this be the one? I, I, you know, I like this person. They're cute. Like, so it's just it become this frantic, high-pressure situation because the clock's ticking. You know, we joke about it, but there really is this deep-down impulse, i got to get that ring by spring. And if it's not there, then, you know, it's, you, know you get um, freaked out, as it were. But look, when, when you see that singleness is a calling... A calling, it frees you from a lot of that pressure. And frankly, I think it frees you to break up with some people. I think some of you are probably in relationships that are so unhealthy and so poisonous, and you know it and everybody else knows it, but you're hanging on to it so desperately because, you, because you're afraid. You're afraid that if I get on the other side of graduation, nothing's going to be there for me, and so I've got to hang on to this. Which is, that fear is ultimately rooted in unbelief. It's this unbelief of, I don't trust that God has anything better for me than this. So even though it's awful, even though it's crazy toxic and we fight all the time, we're clawing each other's eyeballs out, it's not good. This is the best that I can get. And so you hang on because you really don't trust that God would have anything better for you. But when you understand that singleness is a calling, it frees you from the pressure, it frees you from the hunt, it frees you from the ring by spring lie. And to actually trust that God may have something better for you that just may not work in your timetable. Singleness is a calling. Here's the second thing. Singleness is not just a calling. Believe it or not, this passage says that singleness is a gift. It's a gift. Let's let's look back at verse 7. First verse on your handout there. He says this. I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that gift. What Paul's basically saying in the context of this passage is God gives different people different gifts. God gives some people the gift of singleness, and God gives some people the gift of marriage. Singleness, biblically speaking, is considered a gift. And I know you think, sounds like a crappy gift. Wish God would return it and get his money back because that doesn't seem like that's great of a gift. I mean, I remember, I remember when, I mean, you remember when you were younger and you went to kids' birthday parties. I remember when I was a kid going to, uh, you know, little boys' birthday parties and, uh, you know, the, the birthday boy would get the big cake and blow out all the candles. Everyone would sing to him and then afterward he'd be brought this, like, buffet of presents that he would open and start ripping into it and, like, this, this is my generation, but I just remember like the kid opening up like the massive G.I. Joe command center. Be like, oh, dude, that's awesome. I wish I had that. And like opening cap guns and Star Wars figures and all kinds of cool stuff. And, but you remember when you're little, you go to these parties, you always get a little party favor. You know, these, it's a bag of like little knickknacks. So you got like a little kazoo in there. You got like a miniature slinky. Maybe some starbursts throw up, you know, thrown in there. And so, you know, when you leave the party, you think, okay, we both got gifts. Homeboy got G.I. Joe Command Center. I got a kazoo. And I know sometimes when you think about this, you think, okay, when the Bible uses that language of gift, marriage is the G.I. Joe Command Center gift, and for everyone else, he kind of gives the second-rate party favor crap gift of, like, the party, you know, the, the kazoos. But which is, you know, ironically enough, there's several married people that I know that would actually reverse it and, and feel like I got the crap gift and I so wish that I was single. I so wish that I had the gift of singleness. And so I want you to see this. There are people on both sides that feel like, man, I got gypped here. 
And here's the lie that you have to confront on this one, is that it's the lie that God gives bad gifts. That God never, ever gives bad gifts. Ever. And so, um, the passage even tells you why singleness would be a good gift. Why it's actually a good gift, not some second-rate crap party favor gift. It gives you two reasons. Here's the first reason why singleness is actually a good gift. Um, Here's the first one. Because marriage is really hard. And marriage has a whole lot of troubles to it. Look at verse uh, 28. Here's where he says it here. Verse 28. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you of this. Those who marry will face many troubles. That is my life's theme verse, or at least it should be. Because <laughs> That was a joke. Um, y'all are like, she's so unhappy. Um, Marriage, is un- marriage has unique challenges to it because you're bound to another human being, and that just presents unique headaches. So, for example, um, you may actually have to move when you get married because your spouse took a job somewhere, and that's really inconvenient for you. I was you know, married to my wife, Catherine. We were living in Charlotte. We were enjoying the big city. We had an awesome community. We had a great church, and... Uh, I got a job in Boone, North Carolina. And so I moved my sweet wife, uprooted her from her church and her neighborhood and her network of people, and moved her to a small, sleepy mountain town of 16,000 people where it's buried in snow six months out of the year. And that was not fun for her. You know, that's an inconvenience for her because she's connected to me. Another example, when we were living in Charlotte at the same time, um, Catherine got in this kind of horrible car accident. I mean, no, no one was really hurt, but our car, her, our car was total that she was driving. It wasn't her fault. Someone ran through a red light and smashed it. And so we had to pay to get this car repaired. So out of our money, now I'm having to write checks to pay for something I had nothing to do with. That's an inconvenience to me because now you're, you're connected to each other. So you have to kind of deal with each other. Marriage is a, you know, there's, there are unique um, headaches involved. That's what marriage is. You're connected to somebody, and so there's a natural sort of pull and sacrifice there. But here's the second reason why Paul says that singleness is a good gift. Um, It's good because it allows you to serve the kingdom in an unrestrained way. That you can actually throw yourself into the service of the kingdom in an unrestrained way. I'm not going to read it again. It's too long. But this is what 32 through 35 Verses 32 through 35, this is all about. It's basically saying when you're single, you have opportunities that married people don't. And that's absolutely true. When I was in college, I lived in the dorms for four years. I know, I know. I'm still dealing with the fallout, the baggage of that. But, you know, I don't know if if this has been your dorm experience, but on our hall, you know, once you get deep enough into the semester, it became one of those halls where everybody kind of, goes in and out of everybody's rooms. You kind of know who everybody is, and you kind of um, develop a little bit of a community on the floor. And there was this um, guy a few doors down who's on the golf team uh, that I ended up becoming good friends with. He was, uh, he was raised Jewish, um, but he was currently, at least at that point in college, he was um, an atheist, um, practicing homosexual, um, 
I mean, we were just kind of light years apart from each other, but we would have these amazing conversations deep into the night, you know, 2 a.m., 3 a.m., eating Taco Bell, talking about God and science and philosophy and faith, and it was just amazing conversations with this friend of mine that wasn't a Christian, and there's no way in the world I would ever do that now, ever. One, because I'm, I'm married and have two kids, and so they're awake at 7 a.m. regardless of what time I go to bed. And, and I, hope, I, really, I hope to never be eating Taco Bell at 3 a.m. I will eat at any other time of the day, but not 3 a.m., much less talking to another human being at 3 a.m. Because I'm married now. My situation is different. I don't have the same opportunities to do that like some of you can. And his point is, look, marriage, it, 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 it takes away from some of those ministry opportunities where if you're single, you can do that kind of stuff. You can stay out till 3, having amazing conversations in the dorms or cookout or whatever y'all do. Um, <laughs> Whatever y'all be doing. But here's, but here's the deal. If, if you were here last week, Paul said in Ephesians 5, marriage is amazing. And here he says in 1 Corinthians 7, singleness is amazing. And his point is, and the Bible's point is, is that there are trade-offs. They are both good. They just have unique challenges and blessings inherent to each of them. They're trade-offs. But if we're going to say that singleness is a gift then you have to acknowledge that there is a giver. That there is a giver. This is why verse 7 makes it very explicit. I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. Who God is, the character of God, has to factor in here. Because if you don't understand who God is, you're going to hear me say, singleness is this awesome gift, and you're always going to think, no, it isn't. It sounds horrible. But unless you understand the nature of God, then you'll begin to understand singleness as possibly being a good thing. This passage um, out of Romans 8, Romans 8.32 says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Here's what that verse is basically saying. If you want to know that God's absolutely recklessly committed to your welfare and to your good, then just look at the bloodiness of the cross. That's how you can know that God is absolutely committed to you. Because what God does on the cross is he says, look, I could make you pay for what you deserve, but I love you too much to do that, so I'm going to send my own son to climb up on a cross, and he pays for what you deserve. He'll die in the place where you should have died, where I should have died. And so if God's willing to do that for us, Paul is saying in Romans 8.32, if God's willing to do that for you, he's willing to do anything for you. He's at, that's the historical demonstration that he's recklessly committed to you, committed to your good. And so if you take that passage and you put it together with 1 Corinthians 7, here's what that means. That means this. God cannot not be good to you. God can never not be good to you. I know the double negatives are confusing, but that's intentional. There is never a point that God would not be good to you. Look, there, there's this quote that I want, I want to read to you. Um, it's from this woman named um, Paige Benton Brown. Some of you may even know her. She's from, um, she lives in Nashville now. But she was um, single for a good part of her 30s. 
She's married now. She used to be on staff with RUF, I think at Vandy back in the day. Um, but she wrote this article that kind of went viral. And uh, she wrote it when she was single. And so I included this quote in your handout because I want to read it and I wanted y'all to follow along because it's really, I think it's really good and it's really helpful. So hear this coming from a woman who is single uh, and who understands and knows the love of God. And here's what she says. Can God be any less good to me on the average Tuesday morning than he was on that monumental Friday afternoon when he hung on a cross in my place? The answer is a resounding no. God will not be less good to me tomorrow either because God cannot be less good to me. His goodness is not the effect of his disposition, but the essence of his person. Not an attitude, but an attribute. I long to be married. My younger sister got married two months ago. She now has an adoring husband, a beautiful home, a whirlpool bathtub, and all new corning wear. Is God being any less good to me than he is to her? The answer is a resounding no. God will not be less good to me because God cannot be less good to me. It is a cosmic impossibility for God to shortchange any of his children. If you can wrap your mind around what she's saying, I think that will really free you and actually enable you to see anything that comes your way is a gift from God. He cannot not be good to you. It is a gift. It doesn't feel like it. And in some mysterious way that I don't know all the answers to, it's actually working to make you better, to love him more, to depend on him more, to to strengthen your faith, to find deeper joy and satisfaction in him. Last lie that we got to confront and then we'll be done. Here's the last lie that we got to deal with in regard to singleness. And it's this. The lie is this. As soon as I'm satisfied in God alone, then God will bring me someone special. You know the lie? You mean you know that thing that you believe that, okay, deep down, if I'm really contempt, if I'm really just spiritually sold out for him, if I'm satisfied in him alone, then at that point he'll bring me someone special. In, in other words, uh, it's this idea that singleness is kind of a testing phase. It's a holding room for the spiritually immature. And when you cross a threshold into being absolutely spiritually content, then he'll give you what you've always wanted, which is a nice shiny boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever. And and, and here's why that's a lie. Let's use me as an example because I thought this. I believed this. I said this. When I was a freshman in college, I thought I believed I have the permanent lifelong gift of singleness. I'll I'll never get married because I just want to serve Jesus alone. And I would say things like, I just want to date Jesus right now. I don't want to date anyone else. I'll just date Jesus which feels really weird to think back about me saying that. But here's what I was basically doing. I was trying to trick God. If I can get him to believe I'm totally sold out for him, I only want to serve Jesus, I don't want anyone else, I'll be a spiritual martyr here, and I just want him. Then maybe he'll be impressed with that and love me enough to give me what I've always wanted. If I give up the one thing that I want then he'll find that impressive and then give it to me. He's trying to do reverse psychology on God, which, by the way, doesn't really work. You can't, you can't trick God. But, it's, but that's the idea. It's the idea to say, I'll give up the one thing I want for you, God, and I'll be content with just you, and you will so be impressed with that and love me so much because of that, then you'll just want to give me what I've always wanted, right? And here's why that is such a lie. It's because it's so antithetical to the gospel. 
It's, it looks at God and says, look, you are withholding good things from me, but if I can jump through enough hoops and impress you with my spiritual fervor, then maybe I can kind of loosen your grip on your good gifts and give me some of it. God never gives you good things as a result of your performance. Ever, 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 ever. It's antithetical to grace. It's antithetical to the gospel. That's what we call legalism. I'm going to perform and then he's going to throw some crumbs at me. That's not who God is. God gives gifts. He gives mercy abundantly beyond anything you could ever perform for. I'll, I'll end with this. Um, uh, there's a good friend of mine who's a pastor uh, at a church, older, older guy than, uh, older man than me, he's a pastor. And um, he was talking with a man from his church who's this elderly man who's been married for 61 years and he's caring for his wife that is um, suffering from dementia. And so this old guy was telling his pastor, my friend, about sort of the evening ritual that they do. Of, of, he says, um, every night, you know, I fix her dinner and I bathe her and I get her dressed and then I kind of tuck her in, into bed. And she's far enough along into her dementia where she's beginning to kind of not recognize uh, her husband doing this anymore. And so he was, he was telling my pastor this story. This was a number of years ago now. But he was telling him the story that he was putting her down. He was, you know, they were doing the ritual. He was tucking her into bed. And um, one night she looks up, up, up at him, her husband, and says, where are you going to sleep? And he says, oh, right next to you, honey. And she looks at him and says, oh, my husband will not like that. And they were kind of laughing about it and joking about it. And um, while it was kind of a funny moment, it was also a pretty heavy moment because it was this moment of that she began to, that there was a sever, there was a, um, so there, there was a connection that had been severed between his care for her and her recognition of who he was. That he had been caring for her, caring for her, caring for her, and the connection had been severed up. I no longer recognize who you are anymore. And if you think about it, that's in many ways what our relationship with God looks like. That he cares for you, he pursues you, he forgives you, he drapes his righteousness and his beauty over you, he sings over you, he gives you good gifts. And it's like the connection has been severed a lot where we look and we don't even recognize who he is. Where he's caring for us like a father would, like a husband would. And sometimes we look at what he's doing and not only do we not recognize it, we think it's harmful. We think he's, we think he's doing something to make us miserable. But just like the husband, even, even though the connection had been severed, it didn't stop the husband from continuing to care, continue to serve, continue to take care of her. And in the same way, the Lord does the same way. He looks at you and me and says, I know you don't recognize my gifts. I know you think I'm stingy. I know you think I'm trying to make you miserable. It's not going to stop me, though. I'm going to continue to pursue you, continue to give you gifts, continue to be gracious and merciful to you even when you don't recognize it, even when you chafe against it, even when you are angry about it, it won't stop them. And that's really good news. The heart of this passage is anchored and rooted in the reality that God is good. And so look, the invitation for you tonight, it doesn't matter if you consider yourself a Christian or not. The invitation is to recalibrate your thinking and to see that God is, is absolutely, unequivocally good. The way that he relates to you is always one of goodness. Come and experience and see the goodness of God and whatever gift he might give you. That's the invitation. Let me pray. 
Father, would you by your grace enable us to see that you are indeed good. That even when you give us gifts and circumstances that seem horrible, that seem terrible, that seem so unfair, so that feel like we've got gypped, we got shortchanged, help us to see you as ultimately the great um, source of life. That our, heart, that our heart would be so rooted and anchored in who you are and your goodness towards us that anything could come our way and we would still be so delighted in the great love that we have found in you. So help us to see the cross. Help us to, help us to have that trickle down deep into our hearts even as we think about dating and marriage and singleness. And help us ultimately to be rested, content in your great love and goodness and grace for us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.